AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for December 6, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by special guest, Michael Klepper. And uh, Michael, you're a principal architect, or at least that's your title, in the AT&T Consulting or Security Consulting Organization. And uh, well, Mike, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thank you. Uh, so yeah, so I am the director for our application security threat and vulnerability management practice and we perform security assessments, penetration tests, and other consulting services for clients of AT&T. All right, very cool. And, um, you know, this could be clients anywhere or, or all over the place, if I understand correctly. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, so you get some opportunity to find some, uh, I guess, we'll call them maybe per, um, not so smart implementations of things. <laughs> yes, we do. We see all kinds of... Uh, Interesting decisions that are made out there for various reasons. Okay, so uh, you know, perhaps we'll have an opportunity to learn a little bit from other people's mistakes, and you know, not to really put them on the chopping block, but I think the uh, the opportunity here is to uh, give others an opportunity to make smarter decisions, right? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, thanks, and welcome to the program. And here I have John Hogaboom here with me. Back welcome, again. John. Thank Glad you. to have you here, absolutely. And I'm Brian Rexrode. And, and uh, you know, Mike, let's go over to you first and uh, talk a little bit about, uh, I guess there was a little bit of a discovery in uh, Web of Trust, and I'll let you go ahead and describe it. Yeah, so Web of Trust uh, offered a safe browsing plugin. They've done this uh, for, you know, pretty close to a decade now. Mm -hmm. uh, the plugin's available for Firefox and Chrome. And um, there was a German television stu studio uh, called NDR, uh, that started taking a look at this for some reason mm -hmm. and found out that the plugin was actually collecting data about its users' browsing activity. If, I'm sorry, if I can interrupt just a sec. So when they said uh, uh, safe web search and browsing, what, did they, what, is it, what was the intent behind that? What, what did they mean by safe? Uh, you know, protecting from malicious websites, Plug, uh, you know, other types of attacks, scripts, things of that nature. Okay, so you, the, the idea here is it would let you know if uh, you're trying to visit some site that you probably would want to refrain from visiting, right? Right. Okay, very good. Sorry for the interruption. Go ahead. Oh, not at all. Um, so it was discovered that the plugin itself was collecting data about its users' browsing activity and actually pulling that back and being sold by the company itself. Um, and this was interesting because it wasn't something that was overtly uh, presented to the users that they really understood was happening and that uh, it wasn't really sanitized as well as it should have been. Mm -hmm. um, so this is interesting because not only do they have a very large installation base of users, there's uh, approximately 140 million users of this plugin worldwide, um, but it shows the difficulty with which trying to sanitize data happens, right? Even if you have a, a process and a service that really is relying on sanitization of data, that can't always be a very trivial task. You know, there's some challenges there. Mm -hmm. And as was seen in this invest, uh, investigation, they didn't actually manage to scrub the data to the point where it couldn't be tracked back uh, to a particular uh, user. Mm -hmm. uh, they actually 
inadvertently collected data like mailing addresses, shopping habits, travel plans, medical-related information, and in some cases, company confidential information. I mean, if you think about a home user that wants to log into their company's webmail infrastructure uh, to check email on the weekend or something along those lines, uh, in you know those types of situations and others, they were actually intercepting some sensitive corporate data that was getting uh, pulled back. Um, so the organization, you know, has made a public announcement. They're going to, you know, change uh, the way they collect the data. They're going to, you know, revamp their data scrubbing collection efforts, and they're going to make it an opt-out uh, policy uh, so that you can opt out of having your data collected. Uh, but there's some challenges there um, that are going to continue. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, it's an opt-out strategy rather than opt-in. So a lot of users, particularly down the line, may not even realize they need to opt out. Um, you know, those types of agreements are always mm-hmm. challenging. Um, the second is they've already had challenges with scrubbing data once. How confident can we be that data scrubbing uh, algorithms are going to improve in the same kind of situation mm-hmm. isn't going to happen again? Yeah. Uh, and then the third interesting point that I took away from this was the sort of, you know, less than obvious uh, security risk of things like browser plugins. Because uh, a lot of organizations, you know, they're operating with permissions that actually allow a lot of their end users to download and install plugins on an as-needed basis because you know, they don't want to have, you know, help desk calls or things like that. So the the potential for malicious plugins or plugins that take activity like this and might actually you know trespass upon some corporate data is actually something that you know we should look to account for in awareness uh, training to end users to make sure that they understand that they really need to be conscious about what types of browser plugins uh, that they're allowing to be installed on their machines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all very good points. So I, I think what you're basically saying is like the sort of the controls around browser plugins don't necessarily have all the same types of controls that we've kind of, I think, kind of almost take for granted in mobile device apps today, where the market's sort of paying, you know, pretty close attention to what's being done. Maybe not perfect, but, you know, some reasonable attention to what's being done and then taking things off that uh, that are considered, you know, uh, perhaps don't belong there, or had malicious intent associated with it. Although, in this particular case, there was no real malicious intent found. It was really a case where there were just uh, perhaps mistakes in the implementation of how it managed data. Am I understanding that correctly? Right, right. It wasn't like it was, you know, uh, an actual malicious plugin. Mm-hmm. It was just a plugin that, due to its implementation choices mm-hmm. um, and its um, back-end processes, kind of led to some unfortunate results. Yeah. Now, I guess, uh, you know, perhaps uh, some additional safeguards. I don't know anything about the agreement that was in place for information that was sold to third parties. But, you know, obviously you want the data to be properly anonymized Mm -hmm. um, as a part of that selling agreement. I don't think there's anything malicious. I mean, the fact that they created this was perhaps, uh, or that they were selling this is, you know, as with any kind of uh, tool like this, you would expect that there's some means that they're using to monetize the effort that they put into providing this type of a tool. And, you know, safe browsing isn't a trivial thing to do. You've got to be evaluating sites and, you know, analyzing which ones are malicious and, you know, making decisions about those all the time. So there's there's work involved that they're providing a service. It's not surprising that they want to monetize that by selling information that they're gathering. I guess it's the anonymization. So there's a, you know, a problem with that that was discovered. but. 
I think it's reasonable in some cases that there be a contractual arrangement with those third parties they're selling to to say, you know, you're allowed to use this information for these purposes, these purposes only as an extra measure so that there is a legal control around that. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, when you start looking at, you know, your layered control model, you know, mm-hmm. certainly those contractual and legal agreements come into play. And you touched on an excellent point. I mean, there's many articles and, and research papers out there about the economy of free and really kind of what some of that, um, you know, rising economic model uh, leads to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the value and the, the you know, proliferation of, you know, personal, uh, not only personally identifiable data, but also metadata um, around individuals and some of the, you know, challenges that come along mm-hmm. with that. So, yep. and that's a very, that's a very deep and interesting kind of pool to jump into there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's a challenge. It's a balance between, you know, making sure the information's aggregated enough and anonymized enough, but still useful for folks that might be interested in purchasing the information to be able to help, you know, refine the products and services that they want to provide to customers. So uh, exactly. this is not the last time we'll see this sort of thing. At least it wasn't, you know, a, a, a breach per se, but uh, it's good that this was discovered and uh, you know brought to light, and so they can go back and correct that, and hopefully the business will continue forward. There's certainly benefit in having safe browsing around. We wouldn't want to deter that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And web of trust is actually one of the better, yeah, you know, types of uh, sites out there for indexing these sorts of things. So mm-hmm. their reputation is pretty good. Um, I would hope that they have some sort of disclosure that when you install the plugin that it lets you know that your information is going to be collected. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, resold to third parties for marketing purposes, blah, 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 blah. But, I would think that's in the agreement, but that's a good point. I'm not sure exactly where that agreement would right. exist for a, uh, a plugin. You may have to go to the site and, or something. You know, Mike brought up a good point about uh, the controls around plugins. I'm not quite sure that there's as good fine-grained controls around plugins that get installed in browsers as there are on the rest of maybe a Windows type machine where mm-hmm. you can enforce things with group policies and whatnot. Although I really haven't you know, looked into that with a browser level thing, mm-hmm. but you know, mostly users can install whatever plugins they want. You don't know if they're putting something bad on their machine and it really is code at that point mm-hmm. that's gonna run that runs under their privilege level. So. Yeah. Well, actually, if I, under- yeah, if I understand correctly, when this was discovered, um, I think uh, uh, the the browser vendors actually pulled it off of their, their oh, plugin yeah. until they could get that that's you know that until issue straightened out. So uh, I don't know what exactly what the status is, but um, it's a good point. I think there is actually some at least a little bit of deliberation that's in place from the browser vendor's point of view. But in terms of perhaps enterprise controls and things, uh, there there are possibly some opportunities for improvement on that. Right. Right. All right. Very good. Thank you, Mike, for bringing this. And uh, John, let's go to you. We'll talk a little bit about this uh, WordPress, an interesting sort of vulnerability discovery. It's amazing the little Yeah, there's a lot of little nuances in this that I found (laughs) was interesting. Well, first of all, I mean, the one thing I think is good that we kind of talk about a lot is, you know, there's a lot of software uh, that is distributed out there, especially, Mm -hmm. um, you know, public domain and whatnot software uh, that doesn't have good means for automatic updating. Yeah. WordPress does. So Mm -hmm. WordPress, when you install the WordPress uh, software on your website, about every hour your website will go up to something that's the api.wordpress.org 
it's like a software update server. Mm -hmm. It checks to see if there's any updates for any of the plugins that I have installed in my you know, installation. Mm -hmm. And if there are, it will automatically update and or notify me. You know, some of them you might need to you know, say I want to install it, but usually it'll have an automatic update, especially mm -hmm. if it's a security thing. So that's kind of good yep. that they have this in place. They thought about the fact that you know, uh, a lot of these content management systems have had issues in the past, so they did something to try to address this. Uh, the downside to the story is um, a research group is looking into the source code behind this API um, WordPress.org website that handles the um, automatic update process. And they found that um, the basic way that it works is that, so if you're a developer and you have a plugin that's a WordPress plugin, I can push my changes to GitHub. And then on GitHub, there's a, what's called a webhook, which is kind of like a back call to WordPress. Mm -hmm. So when a plugin gets updated by one of the developers, GitHub will trigger this webhook that calls back to WordPress or api.wordpress.org. And what they do is they have a shared secret. So they're the only two people that are going to talk to each other using this function is normally GitHub and WordPress. Mm -hmm. And they have a password and they basically use that to uh, take the JSON blob that they're going to send from GitHub to WordPress. They do a computation of the password and the code or the, the JSON. They create a hash. And then when WordPress gets it, he basically does the same function. If it matches, then they know this is legit. So it's right? an integrity check. Right. It's basically, not trying to hide the. Yeah, it's not hiding the actual what's actually in the, the JSON. Right but just to say that this is what I computed when I mm -hmm. combined this with our secret key that we both know. Mm -hmm. um, so the interesting thing about this is they noticed that as part of the message that comes across is the algorithm that's used. So you can specify, normally they use SHA-1, which is I think 160 bits or something mm -hmm. like that. Which I think is being deprecated as well. But it the, might be, but still it's fairly cryptographically strong. It's going to do good error checking and it's going to give a little bit of resilience to And it's, it's a decent enough key space. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to try to brute force it, it's going to take you a while. Mm -hmm. um, but you could change that. So if I'm a rogue actor and I happen to know a weaker algorithm that's supported by PHP, it's really just the PHP, and this is really a flaw over in um, the WordPress receiving part. Mm -hmm. so there's a PHP script running on the WordPress site that GitHub talks to, and he receives this message and he says, oh, well, you don't want to use SHA-1, what would you like to use? And so they found there's this one algorithm called Adler32, which I hadn't really ever heard of, but it's basically like two 16-bit things um, kind of stacked together as two separate ones. Uh, which dramatically reduced the key space to about 100,000 possible combinations. Mm -hmm. So what he does is he, you know, he basically just tried all 100,000 com combinations until he got the right key mm -hmm. because he doesn't really need to know the key. He just kind of like has to permute it properly. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, they were able to do that. But the real, um, the real rub to all of this is even if you're able to do that and there is no vulnerability in the PHP script up on WordPress's site, all you'd really be able to do is update maybe one package that is a legitimate package. Mm -hmm. But what they found is there's actually a vulnerability that allows you to trigger shell exec, which is a PHP command that basically you know, spawns a new shell to do whatever you want. And, uh, so we're up to two vulnerabilities So now. it's two things, really. <laughs> basically, right, he was able to reduce his key space for the kind of, uh, um, I forget, not authentication, but the, uh, 
integrity, valid check. integrity yeah. check. And then uh, use that to trigger the shell exec that basically could return a remote shell. Mm -hmm. And now you have access to the um, uh, you have access to the full web server, and you can do right. whatever you want up there. Um, so that is basically the gist of this attack. The interesting, uh, well, the good thing is that uh, so they reported this bug to automatic. They patched that. They patched the bug in five days. So in reality, it was never really open to the public. Nobody knew mm -hmm. about it. However, had somebody actually found this bug, the other interesting statistic with this, and I'm not quite sure how accurate this is, although I've heard it printed before, is that WordPress accounts for about 25%, maybe 27% mm -hmm. of all websites on the entire internet. Hmm. So if you were to just you know, throw a rock at 10 websites, two and a half of them are gonna be right, WordPress. Right. So if you were able to compromise this automatic update server up on WordPress, in theory, you would get a gigantic, you could potentially get a gigantic mm -hmm. number of web servers, which also usually have very good bandwidth. So if you're gonna use that for DDoS or mm -hmm. anything, you could really cause a lot of havoc. Well, and, and that, that's, been, that's been done in the past yes. effectively. Was, uh, there was WordPress and Joomla. Joomla they and were, a few uh, other basically um, targeting. ones. But, and so, uh, and and I think it is conceivable in the context that you point out is is certainly a, a consideration that it's a lot of sites, but in terms of the when I'll use the word significance of each of those sites, they're probably a little less on the right. Usually less on the business or yeah. commercial space, and more on the home mm -hmm. personal type of spaces that get used. Mm -hmm. Or small business maybe might even use it. Um, but usually not larger businesses. Right, right. But there is a high density of them out there. As, yeah, so. as we've seen, um, that high density becomes a problem for business. Mm -hmm. And that problem we're going to see increase, right? You know, with the you know, various botnets and the rise of, you know, those being very much driven by consumer devices as opposed to alternatively what was, you know, kind of more traditionally unsecured enterprise or educational institution systems. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. One of the things this has certainly gone for it, and you pointed it out very at the beginning of this discussion here, John, is that there is a mechanism here to update software for vulnerabilities is identified, so they are right on top of the game of fixing that. That's where we need to get IoT. Right. <laughs> and basically right. in sort of that same mode, if there's a vulnerability discovered, it gets updated. It's you know, not something that we have to concern the end users with. Right. So, Just got to make sure when you implement it, Make sure it's a good, secure method that has been done. There is the uh, the reporters also mentioned some things like it might be good to have some sort of signature-based checking or code signing of the plugins, things mm -hmm. of that nature, to help improve uh, the security around the stuff. Because you know, basically, even a rogue actor potentially could compromise GitHub and push a plugin that's not really from that correct developer, mm -hmm. and it would get pushed up. Um, and if you had a better means of signing code and things like that, although there's a lot more overhead with that, especially if you're talking about open source, public spaces, people might not be as uh, yeah. keen to implement that. But um, you know, there are some other things that could be done besides just patching these two vulnerabilities. So. All right, well, hopefully that'll progress as time, right. time goes on. I here. still think it's a really, I'm, I was kind of impressed that they had this functionality built in, so mm -hmm. it's a good thing. All right, very good. Okay, so let's take a little bit of a look at the internet weather for the week here. And uh, first item we have, and this is based on basically change activity or alerts that were generated 
uh, scan probes and sources on port 1434 UDP, that's Microsoft SQL database. And in fact, this is uh, most notoriously known for the, uh, this particular port known for the SQL slammer worm that dates way back to, I think, 2001, if I remember correctly, it was around that time period. And um, there's still a little bit of that out there. It pops up every once in a while. Sometimes a device will get infected with it. And in fact, I think you can kind of see that it, it doesn't really take very many devices to really kind of make a bump in the chart, so to speak. Now, we happen to be looking here at a, uh, the, the graph. I put it on a 24-hour moving average to uh, help settle things out a little bit because there is a lot of spiky activity. There's an organization that does sort of a regular scan on a daily basis, and we want to try to keep that um, uh, sort of balanced out. Nevertheless, uh, more recently, we've had an uh, increase in activity, a bump up in the number of... Uh, uh, probes that are taking place, as well as a bump up in the number of sources that are doing that probing. Not a significant increase. It only went up from, you know, on average about five to ten sources, bumped up to on the order of about, uh, you know, 40, and then it peaked up around 50 different sources that are doing that scanning activity. Uh, those sources are in Korea, U.S., and China predominantly. Um, and so uh, perhaps uh, a little bit of spreading of that, uh, that um, uh, SQL slammer infection that had uh, gone around so many years ago. And uh, we got a correction. It was 2003. Oh, 2003. Okay. Off by Off a by couple, couple of years. years. And uh, next item here is, uh, again, based on a sort of alerting of activity, scan probes and sources on port 5555 TCP. I have <laughs> not much really to explain about what this actually perhaps too much to explain about this, what might be associated with this port. There are a lot of things that, um, that might be associated with it. Uh, a number of them, FreeCiv, which uh, I think you had mentioned was a game. Yeah, it's a f like a free version of Civilization, a okay, game. So, right. So, uh, uh, I don't know. Packer Data Protector, um, which uh, it sounds like it's a, a, uh, a, an encryption tool, as well as McAfee Endpoint Encryption Database Server, SAP default for uh, Microsoft Dynamics CRM, as well as, um, oh, excuse me, your uh, Stoff Ether VPN uh, default port. So um, any of those applications might be using this. I don't even know if any of those are actually attributable to this, this particular activity. But to get to uh, more specifically what the activity was, a little bit, of, about a week ago, uh, we started seeing a num uh, an increase in the number of sources probing on this port, and it's not really insignificant. It's actually uh, it has gone up, whereas on the last discussion we were talking about 50 addresses. Right. This is on the order of about 10,000, 12 to 14,000 addresses that uh, had been uh, scanning on this port, and it has an indicator or suggestive of uh, some worm activity that was growing. Then it abruptly sort of cut off, although if you look at the graph before and after, there's still yeah, you know, more still scanning more them, yeah. sources of scanning activity even after that, that cutoff. So I don't know if there was a botnet command and control that was cut off, or maybe they just stopped the botnet from doing scanning and they're using it for something else. Uh, it's difficult to say. Anyway, uh, since then, we've seen some sort of spiky scanning activity taking place with no you know, direct correlation to the number of sources that are doing that scanning. So uh, it could be uh, a new thing. Now, Interesting about this is that the, uh, in terms of that 11, you know, or the actually up to 14 to 15,000 sources that were doing that scanning activity, the real concentration of that was actually in South America. 
Um, and so why it was concentrated in a particular place, perhaps there was some sort of a problem that existed in, the, uh, in an ISP or something like that. Uh, but it did not seem to show up too much uh, in too many other places. We had uh, a little bit of a concentration in Europe, and that's pretty much it. So uh, perhaps there was some sort of flaw that was picked up there or, or, or showed up. Looking at the top, at the top 10 most probed ports, um, no real surprises here. We had a few changes move around. Uh, the top item here is port 23, showing, uh, well, I would say that's roughly 70% uh, of the uh, activity, perhaps a little bit less than that, maybe 60%. And uh, followed by port 7547 TCP, we're gonna take a little closer look at that. That was the one that was associated with the, uh, I mean, most notably, I think in the press, it showed up as a, uh, a, an outage uh, that impacted uh, Deutsche Telekom but affected uh, significantly more ISPs than that in terms of infections of worms. I think the case with Deutsche Telekom is they were in the process of fixing the problem and uh, a number of others haven't really fixed it yet. So we'll take a closer look at that. Followed by port 22 TCP, hasn't really moved in terms of activity. 3389, this remote desktop protocol. Port 80 TCP, obviously web activity. Port 53 moved up a little bit. We're gonna take a little bit of a closer look because port 53 and port 1900 following that are, are both commonly used in reflective denial service attacks. So we'll take a look at uh, the probing activity associated with those two together. And then port 443 TCP, always on the list, uh, almost invariably 445 TCP, that's uh, still remaining config or activity. And uh, last but not least here, 53413 UDP. Now that's that Netis router backdoor. Mm -hmm. We're gonna take a little closer look at that. Uh, even though it showed up in the uh, in the top 10 there, uh, really not significant, even though it bumped up 24 slots as well. Um, and then uh, the top 10 most sources doing the probing. Um, last time when we looked at this, uh, last week, port 7547 is actually taking about a third of this pie chart. Now it's down to about a quarter. So uh, there has been some reduction in that activity, although port 23 still has taken up about half of it. And then uh, we saw some increase in 6881 UDP. We're not gonna actually take a look at that, but I suspect that's a uh, sort of a revival of a BitTorrent network. Uh, we sometimes see those pop up as uh, perhaps means to, uh, and in some of the cases it looked like it might've been uh, perhaps some pirated uh, materials or something along those lines. Uh, yeah, we've seen various BitTorrent things, yeah, but, but sometimes I think it things. shows up on our scanning because of the peer-to-peer -peer nature of BitTorrent. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, it yeah. just kind of, even the legitimate, Definitely. you know, BitTorrent can right. kind of rise up. I mean, any legitimate BitTorrent's going to show up like that, but some of them seem to have been showed up with uh, sort of questionable motives. Especially on some weird ports, like we've seen yeah. some other stranger ports. Like, that's a very common BitTorrent port. Mm -hmm. uh, followed by 445 TCP, uh, 80 TCP, and uh, what, we have a few other ICMP ports. ICMP 8, by the way, is a ping request, and... Um, uh, ICMP zero being a ping response. And then we also see port, uh, excuse me, type 11 and type three, which generally mean that the, uh, you can't get there from here is my uh, sort of um, simplistic way of saying it, but either administratively uh, denied or uh, uh, maybe a timeout or something along right, those lines. Port unreachable or, right. right. Okay, looking at port 23 TCP um, at the uh, number of probes. Number of probes over the last week or so has been relatively flat. We did see a little bit of an increase in activity as this uh, sort of a numeri botnet uh, sort of formed using that port uh, 7547. And uh, that was associated with the, uh, what was it, the uh, CPE win 
uh, management protocol. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the number of sources doing that probing, we haven't seen a significant change. We're looking at 90 days of activity here. So uh, you can see it did increase significantly some time ago and seems to be remaining somewhat flat around you know, 200, 250,000 sources here. So you take a little closer lap. Yeah, somewhere around 250, uh, wavering between 250 and two, uh, 300,000 sources on a given hour and uh, still up in the order of maybe 700,000 through the course of the day. And then looking at scam probes and sources on port 7547 TCP, this is the one that popped up. Again, the CPE WAN management protocol. Actually, uh, the issue that occurred here, we'll take a look at it just after the slide, and I'll uh, describe it a little more in a little bit more detail. But uh, top graph here, the number of probes has not changed significantly. But in the bottom graph, the number of sources doing that probing has been going down. Um, I'll say steadily over the last week or so as uh, hopefully ISPs are correcting the problems on those devices. And uh, most notably, I think the, uh, like it was mentioned, Deutsche Telekom seemed to be on top of that uh, first. We're gonna take a look at the uh, geographic map associated with that as well in a moment. Uh, but first, uh, a little detail on the flaw. I think there were fundamentally three things that occurred and we discussed this in more detail last week. One is that that TR-64 had a design fault. TR-64 is actually the land side uh, DSL CPE configuration protocol. Basically it's an ability on the land side of a uh, like a residential gateway you'd be able to do some configuration control on that fun on that uh, on that device and it didn't require any authentication. That's by design. My opinion that's a flaw in the design. You should require some sort of authentication so that it can't be abused. Uh, and the ne next piece of it is that the uh, the that interface, that protocol was inadvertently exposed to the internet side of the device. So it was uh, available on the WAN interface. And then last but not least, that there was a uh, command uh, injection flaw that allowed uh, the protocol to be used to execute commands on the device, arbitrary commands, which would be in this case to be able to have it uh, download and, and run malware. So the combination of those things kind of contributed to this. There were two uh, specific devices that have been identified uh, with this problem, the EIR D1000 device, as well as a speed port router that uh, Deutsche Telekom uses. And um, I think work had been, has been done to correct those. Uh, but the use of devices that have that sort of problem seems to be much more widespread than just um, uh, had been originally disclosed. And as you can see here, sources of the activity are very heavily in Europe, Middle East continues to be that way. Um, and actually, this is actually last is week's last graph. Week, right. uh, we're gonna, it continues to be that way nevertheless. Just to do a little bit of a comparison, this particular graph was done on 140,000 sources, roughly 140,000 sources. And uh, we'll go ahead and pop to the next graph here, which is half as many sources. But what you'll see is that the uh, diversity of that, uh, that activity has, um, uh, I think, increased significantly. So you see a lot more activity around the United States. You see activity around Europe, uh, over into Eastern Europe as well. My personal point of view is I don't think that is an increase in the number of infections per se. I don't think it's propagated significantly further. I think what this is, is you're seeing activity from researchers all, all around the world that are basically probing the network and trying to find these devices. Well, or other botnets. 
it that could, aren't necessarily vulnerable to this. Well, that's a good point. This, yeah. You know, vulnerability on this port, but are looking for any other devices that they could pull into the fold. Absolutely, that's a, a, absolutely a possibility. So other botnets may be doing, attempting to do recruiting activity, but right. aren't necessarily these devices infected. Right. And so uh, it's a very good point, John. Thanks. So, uh, but the, it is encouraging that the uh, number of devices has gone down to about half of what, at least from our point of view, ha has gone down to uh, at least half of what it was before, previously. Now, switching gears a little bit here, um, once the botnets are built, and that's uh, basically reflective of uh, uh, building the botnets, they often get used in denial service attacks. Uh, we're seeing more and more frequently this is a little bit backwards, <laughs> we're seeing less and less reflective attacks and more execution of just plain old UDP flooding attacks or sin attacks. Yeah, directed kind attacks. Kind of a resurgence of what we had well, seen Well, I mean, the Mirai botnet has a lot of functionality for directed attacks right. or spoof source attacks if your ISP supports that. Um, so I haven't, I haven't seen them in at least that botnet using reflective attack mm -hmm. as part of their vector so all right but you're right so uh but they still they still do support reflective uh denial of service attacks and uh what i'm basically graphing here since we saw some resurgence in activity and probing for uh, some of these ports i just combined some of the most popular ports that are used for those reflective attacks and this is the probing activity to find those devices not necessarily the uh actual reflection act attack act attack activity itself. So we have port 1900, that's uh, character generator, port 53, that's DNS, port 123, that's network time protocol, and then port 1900 UDP, which is a simple uh, service discovery protocol. And basically what you can see here is that the, um, you know, looking farther to the right, there was a significant resurgence, I'll call it, and probing for port 1900, that's the green uh, band on the graph. Uh, no real notable increase in activity in most of the others, although we did see a spike, I'll call it, in uh, scanning activity on port 53, that's sort of the amber color on the graph. And that activity is um, uh, basically attributed to the uh, sort of the bump up in its rank on the, uh, on the pie chart that we were looking at earlier. And I think this is the last item we have to report on here. This is scan probes and sources on port 53413 uh, UDP. This is that backdoor associated with Netis home routers. And uh, wow, why, why was there even a, a <laughs> why did yeah. it move up in the ranking? There was actually a little bit of a spike way down to the right, but I chose deliberately to show 180 days just to put it into perspective that even though there was a little bit of a spike in the activity and it did bump up into the top 10, uh, it was nowhere near as significant as what we had seen uh, previously, actually, in the, in the midsummer time frame. So uh, uh, I don't think there's really a, a significant resurgence in the activity on this particular report. But nevertheless, uh, I, to my knowledge, that backdoor has not been repaired. It's still uh, out there. And uh, I guess one other thing I wanted to sort of point out, since we have been looking at a lot of this botnet activity, uh, there was an article that I ran across. This was in the register, actually the UK version of the register. I assume it's in, uh, in other uh, releases as well. But uh, Sony had taken some action to uh, what they used the term here, to kill off a secret backdoor in 80 models of their uh, CCTV, CCTV uh, DVRs. And uh, basically, they had a, an interface that had been discovered that uh, basically allowed access to the HTTP interface uh, through a secret password. 
Hmm. And um, those have since been removed. And so I think uh, the sort of the point here is that we should never really assume that there isn't some sort of a vulnerability or backdoor in devices. They're often there. Even very reputable companies uh, have these types of things in there. Um, whether it's actually a prudent thing to do is another thing that's certainly worth debate. But uh, it is a good idea to have, um, a, well, first of all, perhaps do some testing and have uh, some good, um, sort of, I guess, practices, layered security around devices to make sure that uh, things like this uh, you can't. Now, actually, how you subvert this sort of an issue is a little bit of a, a challenge in itself. But nevertheless, uh, you know, put good layers of security around devices the best you can to uh, be able to. to uh, you know, make yourself somewhat immune to these types of issues. And it's, John, as you pointed out earlier, the ability to actually update devices is significant here. I don't, in this particular case, to my knowledge, it did not appear that there was any update, automatic update feature. Right. Here we have 80 different models of devices that need to be updated with new firmware to be able to correct this. It's not clear that they're actually going to get corrected. I was just going to say that on the upside, they at least actually have the capability of updating the firmware. I think that, you know, some of the lower-end devices, they don't even have that capability. And certainly, you know, applaud Sony for taking the action to make an update available. I think that um, operationally, you're going to have, I think a lot of organizations are going to see challenges because unlike patching Windows machines and other types of uh, platforms, you know, the, the ability to centrally manage and push out firmware installs is, mm -hmm. you know, probably much lacking uh, by comparison in most organizations. Yep. You know, and perhaps for a future discussion, we can uh, bring up the topic. I think there are really just about eight things that really need to be done to be able to, uh, to, to do a reasonable job actually uh, protecting almost all of the types of issues we've run into, you know, significant issues that we run into with IoT so far. And I think it's going to be really important that in order to have IoT be successful, that those requirements be kept relatively minimum. You know, but it, it, we can't have, you know, big uh, regulatory controls in place that keep IoT devices from being inexpensive and, you know, power efficient. You know, if it, if it becomes too arduous, they're not going to be successful. So uh, there's a lot more movement around uh, putting some uh, controls in place to make sure uh, devices that connect to the network are secure. I think that's a very positive thing from the security point of view. And it's a matter of making sure that there's good balance between the controls, the requirements, and making sure that the uh, it does not um, disrupt the opportunities that you get from uh, internet connected devices. So. I, I came up with a great idea, and I'll be quick. Okay. But for the home router, so imagine, so if there's a new firmware update available, what the vendor should do is, if they can't automatically patch it for whatever reason, like maybe sometimes you have to like go in. Mm -hmm. but most people don't know. So what they should do is they should have like a little speaker in there that chirps like your smoke alarm, like every 30 <laughs> seconds, over and over again. It'll just yeah. make you crazy and it'll make people update. <laughs> right? That's, That's actually, a great idea. Control, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it certainly gets the battery placed in the fire alarms. Right. It's actually a clever feature that somebody came up with. And yeah. I wonder if they have a patent on that feature. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. You're absolutely right. And, uh, although it takes about 20 minutes chasing around the house to try to figure out where right, to figure out which one it is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
All right, very good, John. And uh, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. And uh, Mike, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And, and uh, John? Thank you for joining. Yep, thanks. I'm Brian Rexford. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.